in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome to the 8th chapter. To the chapter in the opinion of many that is the great chapter of the letter. To the chapter that in the opinion of many is in fact the great chapter of all of the Word of God. The crowning jewel of the Scriptures. Romans chapter 8. And what Paul does here in the 8th chapter of Romans is that he begins with an opening statement that is both a conclusion to what he has been saying and has written thus far and the stating in that conclusion of a propositional truth, a grand statement of truth that he is going to expound upon and unpack throughout the rest of the letter, throughout the rest of the chapter. And what I want to do is I just want to begin by telling you what I believe the grand theme of Romans chapter 8 is. And the more that I study it, the more convinced I am that this is, in fact, the grand theme. And it is, Romans chapter 8, is all about the security of the believer. The certain and full salvation and eternal security of everyone who is a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are secure in that position now and will always be forevermore. That, I believe, is the grand theme. And along with that grand theme, in the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul also includes some great themes, like the Spirit's work in and through the life of the believer. And then the byproduct of that, the sanctification of the believer, the spiritual growth of the believer that is the guaranteed result of the Holy Spirit's work in the believer. Those are great themes, and we're going to see them as we move down through this chapter. But the grand theme is the security of the believer. And I tell you that, And I tell you this regularly and I will continue to tell you that what we need to do is to keep the context in the forefront of our mind. We need to keep the grand theme and the great themes that is being dealt with as we move phrase by phrase and verse by verse through this letter. We need to keep them on the forefront because they so effectively help us to properly understand and apply the truth that is being proclaimed. So, I'll try to do this much quicker than I did in the first service, uh, but I want to give you, again, the context that precedes the 8th chapter of Romans. First, I'll do a flyby of the first four or five chapters. Paul opens in chapter 1, 16, and 17 with his thesis statement. 
The theme that he's going to write about in this letter. And this is the theme that we are justified, made right with God, saved by faith. That the righteous live by faith. And then in the very next verse, chapter 1, verse 18, he begins to develop the problem. And what he shows us is that from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way down, thank you, Brian, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 19, is that all of humanity is under the wrath of God because of sin. Guilty, condemned, rightfully so, justly condemned, and under God's wrath. And then he comes to chapter 3, verse 20, and for the rest of that chapter, he gives the answer to the great problem, the chief problem of humanity, our sin, condemnation, and wrath. And he says the answer is this, and there is only one, and it is Jesus Christ, him crucified. His work on the cross and his meritorious atonement that he provided through his death and the victory that he won for his resurrection, that it is in, through faith in him and in him alone that we are made right with God. Then what he does in chapter 4 is that he goes to the life of Abraham, the great character of Israel's history, and he says, Abraham's life proves that we are justified by faith only. And he shows how God, in fact, said to and about Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then he comes to chapter 5, and he goes deep really deep. And he begins to to develop in detail the great theme of the believer's union with Christ. And he starts that by saying, we, all of humanity, are united to Adam. And we are so united to Adam. We are in such solidarity to Adam who is our representative head, our federal head over all of humanity. We are so connected and united to him, Paul says, that when Adam sinned in the garden and broke God's direct command and brought the fall, you know what happened? Every one of us sinned in him right then. That in that sin, we were connected to Adam in solidarity with him and his sin became our sin. His condemnation became our condemnation. His wrath became our wrath. All of humanity. But he only says that so that he can establish the principle of solidarity and federal headship and then introduce another Adam the second Adam, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, in the same way that we all sinned in Adam and are condemned and under the wrath of God through him, in the very same way, if you are in Christ, if you have been justified, then just like Adam's sin became yours and your condemnation, Christ's obedience became yours 
and your justification. You see, when we first hear about Adam and being guilty and condemned in Adam, our spirits want to rise up and say, wait a minute, that's not fair. But I'm so thankful that that is the truth because it set up the fact that Jesus Christ could live the perfect life as our second federal head, as our representative, and in his obedience, we can then be found as fully meeting the requirement of God of perfect righteousness. So he goes deep there in Romans chapter 5. And what I want to show you is just the two bookends of the chapter. Really important reason that I'm doing this. Romans chapter 5, the beginning and the ending statement of the chapter. As Paul so frequently does in the development of an argument, he is so logical and consistent and progressive and focused on where he is going and detailed in his development of a thought that he begins by stating a great propositional truth, a monumental truth about the Christian life or about the unbeliever, whatever truth he's stating. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he states an incredible propositional truth about the believer. Let me read it for you. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, based upon all of the truth that I have just said, he explained in Romans 1 through 4, therefore, based upon all of that and what Christ has done in his sacrificial death and his resurrection, based upon that, therefore, everyone who has put their faith in Christ has been justified and they have peace with God through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what he does for the, for the rest of the chapter is he expounds upon that propositional truth. He takes it apart in detail and explains it from a multifaceted way. Then he comes to the end of the chapter, verse 21, and he makes this great concluding statement in summary. Verse 21 so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I submit to you then, and we talked about this in detail as I preached through Romans 5, but I submit to you again this morning that the grand theme of Romans chapter 5 is the security of the believer. He begins by stating it in verse 1, By saying, because of all that Christ has done, when we put our faith in him, we are in a brand new position with God, at peace with God. Develops it and concludes at the end of the chapter. And that reality is that the grace of God wins the day and we have eternal life. We are eternally secure in our position in Christ. Now keep that 
brief snapshot of Romans 5 in your mind. Propositional statement, development of truth throughout the entire chapter, great concluding statement, all painting the picture of the believer's security in Christ. But at the end of chapter 5, we read the verse, he makes a statement that has two phrases in it that can be and were misunderstood by many. He said something about grace, superabounding over sin, that when sin increased, grace increases all the more, so that some were saying the antinomian, antinomianism, it was a belief that said, man, let's go out and sin some more. And so what he did in the sixth chapter is he took a detour. Not divorcing himself from the theme of justification by faith, but he, in a parenthetical statement, he dealt with the misinterpretation that people were making from his teaching of justification by faith alone, claiming that it would lead and incite, lead people to and incite them to sin. Because grace beats sin. And so he refuted that teaching and explained in detail in the sixth chapter that in fact, if you understand grace and what happens to a person when they're united in Christ, it doesn't in fact incite sin. It is the greatest motivation to holiness that there is. But he also made a statement at the end of chapter five about the law. And it looked like he was bashing the law of God. He said something again in the sixth chapter about it. And so what he did in the seventh chapter is he made another parenthetical statement to explain what people were misunderstanding about the law. He explained the purpose of the law of God. And he did that so that he could show that just like you cannot be justified by living in obedience to the law because you're all sinners, neither can you be sanctified by living in obedience to the law. In other words, you can't make yourself as a Christian, you can't make yourself holy by obeying the law. That was never the purpose of the law. So, Great development of this doctrine of justification by faith, Romans 1 through 5. Parenthetical statement, verses 6, chapter 6 and 7, to clear up two errors that people were um, promoting because they misunderstood his teaching. Then, chapter 8. Now, the question Where would Paul then begin in the 8th chapter of Romans? If chapter 5 is all about the security of the believer, and chapters 6 and 7 are a detour to clear up some misunderstandings, then it would make sense that chapter 8 would be directly connected to the thought of chapter 5 and would continue to flow where he ended that thought. And in fact, that is precisely what it does. 
that Paul, this logical, precise thinker, just continued with his train of thought and he did the same thing in chapter 8 that he did in 5. He starts with a great propositional truth in verse 1. And then in verses 2 to verse 34, he expounds and unpacks that propositional truth and then he concludes with a great summary statement. Exactly the outline of Romans chapter 5. Listen to the propositional truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, to many has been one of down through history, and I believe will continue to be down through the rest of history, one of the greatest, most blessed verses in the Bible to the heart of the believer. And what it is my prayer this morning is that you and I could hear what God is, has inspired to be written here and embrace it as really our true condition if we are truly believers. Therefore, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What I want to do is I just want to focus in on a few words here. Therefore, now no condemnation. First of all, I want to start with the word condemnation. Because what he's talking about here is something related to condemnation. He wants to teach us a truth about condemnation as it relates to the believer. So what does the word condemnation mean? There are a variety of words in the Greek that convey the basic idea of condemnation, but the specific word that Paul selected here conveys this thought. It includes the concept of a guilty sentence and the execution of that sentence. Let me say that again. The word in the Greek here for condemnation, it is a word that conveys both the guilty sentence and the execution of that sentence being carried out. Literally, we could say it like this, that condemnation is the judgment of God coming down on an individual, on someone. The judgment of God coming down. Keep that in your mind. Let's go to the word, therefore. Simple concept here. The word therefore is intended again to connect it to what Paul has been saying in the first seven chapters of the book. What he's doing here in verse 1 is he's taking all those seven chapters and he's condensing it all down into one great summary statement as it applies to the life of the believer. 
therefore. The word now. The word now. The word now is a word that refers to what? Present reality. It is a word that is pointing to something that is already an established fact. The now should be connected to the words at the end of Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm sorry, I read 5.1. Let me read 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The now refers to the in Christ Jesus, meaning this. That the moment that you were put into Christ Jesus, the now reality became yours. Not something that's going to become yours on the future day when Christ returns, but it is a present day reality. There is therefore now something true about you if you're in Christ Jesus right now. Perpetually now in the present. And then finally the word no, the little word translated in the English as no. Just a small word, but can I ask you to linger on it for a moment? It is a word that is an absolute word. It is a word of finality and completeness. And it's unfortunate in the English translation that it, loses the force that is given in the Greek. You see, in the Greek, there is a simple negative that could be used, translated as no, and then there's a a compound negative that has a lot more force behind it that can be used, that is translated as no. And the word here in the Greek is the compound negative, the strong statement of no and what it means in the Greek language is this here's a way that you could say it not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now he never can be it is an impossibility That's the strength of the meaning of the statement in the Greek. It means that God will never condemn the true believer to an eternal separation from himself. Never. It is impossible that he would do so. Now, what I want to do is I want to tie all of that together. All of those words and this Incredible propositional statement here. And I want to try to unpack the meaning for you so that you get it settled and driven deep into your heart. And you embrace it and your mind is 
transformed by the reality of what this is saying about you right now and forevermore if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. Again, grand theme of the chapter is the security of the believer. The absolute unchanging, unalterable, eternal security guaranteeing the full and complete salvation of every single one who has come into Christ and guaranteeing that condition and position forevermore. Here's the first overarching truth that I would set before you and then seek to prove, and it's this. No condemnation, no condemnation is the unchanging truth for the believer because justification is a work of God and God alone. Let me say that again. The reason that the security of the believer is unchanging, unalterable, unmovable, fixed, now and forever, is that justification, that act by which God through His Son, Jesus Christ, provided the means by which we could be made righteous and the act by which the Spirit of God baptized us into Christ when we put our faith in Him. That justification act, when we were placed in Christ, that is all a work of God. It is not a work of man in the beginning through any part of its process or in the end, to sustain it. It is God and God alone. It is His divine work. It is His omnipotent hand. It is His predetermined counsel. It is His election from eternity past. His choice. His justification. His sanctification. And His guaranteed glorification of the believer. It is all what He does and not what We do. Therefore, it is a fixed reality because what God does cannot be undone. What God sets His hand to is always going to be accomplished. It will always be completed in its full and complete sense and nothing and no one and no power can ever change it. Because he is the omnipotent, sovereign king and ruler who is working out his plan perfectly. So I say again, the no condemnation for the believer in Romans 8.1. This unalterable security 
for the believer is true and secure because justification is a work all of God and not of us. You see, to be a Christian, in a sense, I think this could be one of the shortest and greatest definitions in Scripture. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. And in fact, that is Paul's great theology right there. That is the phrase that Paul used so prolifically more than he used anything else. In fact, I believe you could sum up Paul's theology and his gospel in two words, in Christ. In Christ. And this position of being in Christ is a brand new creation, a new identity, a new position before God. It's a perfect work. It's a complete work. It's a victorious work. It's a divine work. It's an omnipotent work. Listen. You and I, by our own strength, cannot enter into Christ. Let me say that stronger. You and I cannot add one bit of merit or work that helps the process of getting us in Christ. In fact, We could not affect that process at all any more than we could storm the gates of heaven, break in, rush to the throne, dethrone God, and take his seat and reign forevermore. If you could do that, then you could do something about placing yourself in Christ. But the fact is, it is absolutely impossible. It is all the work of God. And therefore, I say that your no condemnation as a believer is secure because the reason there is no condemnation for you is that you are in Christ. And the way you got there, if you're a believer, is that God put you there. And only God. And he's going to keep you there if he puts you there. Because he who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why it's called eternal life. Because you get it and it's yours forevermore. It's secure. It doesn't change. Nothing can affect it because it's the work of the omnipotent, sovereign king of the universe. Here's the problem, though. Here is what many believers, here's kind of the process that many believers see taking place in the Christian life. I'm talking about true believers. And just be transparent. This was my story. This was my story for a number of years until I opened the Word of God and started Digging deeply into the truth of the New Testament. The truth of the gospel. 
and had my theology altered and aligned what I believe is with the truth of Scripture. But here is how many believers see the process. They place their faith in Christ, are baptized into Christ, and enter into a state of no condemnation. They are now at peace with God. And they move along in their Christian life. But as we talked about extensively last week, what happens is that the battle of sin rages hot. And what happens in the battle is that far too often sin wins the day over the spirit. And the mortal body of the flesh gets the best of us. And many... When that happens and they step into sin, they see themselves as believers coming under the condemnation of God again. And their heart is in turmoil and they are in guilt by the work of the conviction of the Spirit until a time where they confess that sin to the Lord and are cleansed of it. And then they step out of that condemnation and come once again into a place of no condemnation, a place of peace until such a time as they fall again and enter into condemnation and then confess and repent and out and in and out they go in the ebb and flow of their Christian life. That's how it is viewed. But I say to you this morning, that is not the way that Scripture points to the Christian life. The way that Scripture points to the Christian life is that there is now no condemnation, never will be your Non-condemnation, your peace is eternally secured by the work of the omnipotent God. And as such, it is unchangeable, unalterable. You see, the problem with that mindset is a misunderstanding of the believer's new identity and position. I think that there is a sense where, maybe if I could paint the picture like this, the believer in that mindset sees themselves holding on to Christ and therefore in Christ kind of sticking there and then they sin and let go and they kind of fall out of Christ and then they run up and grab onto him again in confession and repentance and and then they let go and fall out and The reality, though, of Scripture is that when you were justified, when you placed your faith in Christ and the Spirit of God baptized you into Christ, what He did is He made you brand new. He gave you a brand new identity, a brand new position. And if you don't understand that position and the reality of who you now are, you'll see yourselves hopping in and out. Therefore, living in fear. Hoping against hope that the final moment finds you on the right side instead of the wrong side. Ladies and gentlemen, 
just trying to make this simple point. We cannot jump in and out of condemnation because of something that we do or don't do. And the reason we can't is because justification settles the issue of condemnation and justification has nothing to do with what we did or did not do. It has everything to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So that our justification, our position of rightness before God is firmly established on the identity and the work of Christ, not on who we are or what we're doing in the flesh. It's based upon God's work and who He made us at the moment of justification. He actually joined us and put us into Christ. Here's the second truth that points to the security of the believer. There is no condemnation for the believer because the believer is in a new relationship to sin. Oh, that is so critical to understand. This is going to be looking back to Romans chapter 6 now. But it's included right here in Romans 8.1 because Romans 8.1 ends with the statement that who are the ones who are not condemned? It is those who are what? Those who are what, church? In Christ Jesus. And so what does that mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, here is a part of what it means. It means that if you're in Christ Jesus, which happens at salvation or justification, you have a new relationship to sin. A brand new relationship to sin. Let me explain that. By asking and answering this question. What kind of death did Christ die? You see, Paul told us in Romans chapter 6, That when we put our faith in Christ, the Spirit of God baptized us into Christ Jesus, joined us to Christ, united us to Christ, so that whatever is true of Christ is true of us. Think of Adam. Again, think Adam. We sinned in Adam. Guilty and condemned in Adam solidarity to Adam. But when we were saved and justified, we left our connection with Adam and were placed in Christ so that just as what was true of Adam was true of us in sin and condemnation and death, what is true of Christ is true of us in justification and righteousness and life. And so what kind of death did Jesus die? It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, for the death Jesus died. He died to sin once for all. Jesus Christ died to sin. Let me tell you what that means. Again, it means this, that Jesus Christ in his incarnation, that what he did is when he left heaven, 
heaven's throne and put on the flesh of man and came down into our realm, into our world. What he did is he entered into a realm where sin reigned in death. That is true of this earthly realm. Sin reigned in death. Paul said that directly earlier in Romans. And what Jesus Christ did is he put on the flesh of mankind, became really one of us, and entered into this realm where sin reigned in death. He subjected himself to that realm. And then when he died, Paul said, he died to sin. That doesn't mean he quit sinning. He never sinned. It means this. That he ended the relationship to sin that he willingly entered into when he stepped into the realm where sin reigned in death on this planet. When he died, he stepped back out of that realm, never to enter it again. He lived in it once, took the full penalty for sin, paid it unto death, ended it, died to sin, stepped outside of that realm, never to be subjected to the realm where sin reigns in death anymore. And then what Paul says in the very next verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 11, is this, so also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Church, do you see that? Paul is saying, Here's what in Christ means. Just like Christ died to sin once and for all, you need to reckon that if you're in Christ, that's your truth just like it's his. I mean, not theoretically, not symbolically, that it is actually your reality, that it is how God The Father and Creator of all sees you. You have died to sin once and for all. Therefore, your condemnation, you know, condemnation is due to sin. So that if you've died to sin, you're outside of the realm where it can condemn you anymore. So that you're, con- you're no condemnation as a believer. Romans 8.1 is eternally secure because you have died to sin and are not in the realm where it reigns over you anymore. You are now in Christ. You are outside of the realm where sin reigns. You are free from that realm. It is your reality now, and it's going to be your reality for every single moment through a perfect, unfolding, glorious eternity with God. Hallelujah. That's awesome. It's deep stuff. But you understand what this union with Christ means. It so impacts your theology. So you see what the apostle is saying here. Is that the believer should never see themselves. Under the condemnation of sin. Any more. Because when you were put into Christ. Your sins past. Your sins present. 
and your sin's future were all paid for, all taken care of. You died to sin and its reign of death, stepped into a brand new... No, not stepped into. Let me back that up. You were grasped by the Spirit of God and by His omnipotent power, you were placed into, in a divine and an only divine work, into Christ Jesus, baptized into Him spiritually. That's what happened to you by the work of God. So that your security is... Fixed and unmovable because you have a new relationship to sin. Number one, your security is guaranteed so that there is no condemnation for you now and never will be because salvation and justification is all a work of God. And number two, because you have a brand new relationship to sin. And then number three, your security as a follower of Christ is secure. Your condemnation is ended forever and you are now existing in no condemnation forever because you have a new relationship to the law. A new relationship to the law. You see, the last point was Romans 6. This point is Romans 7. What is the power of the law? You see, the law of God, holy and righteous and good, establishes the standard by which we must be judged. And its standard is perfect righteousness. That's the law that we were under in Adam. In Adam. But what Paul has said at the end of chapter 5, and then again in chapter 6, is that we're not under the law anymore. If we're in Christ, that relationship that we had with the law is ended. And here's what that means. It doesn't mean we don't care about the law and the truth of God. It means this, that the law of God no longer and never again becomes the means by which we are existing in a right relationship with God. That's what it was when we were in Adam. You do the right perfectly, and you're right with God. You sin at any one point, any time, you are guilty of breaking all of the law and are condemned justly by a holy God having broken the rule of perfect righteousness and are under His wrath. That's what it means to live by the law. It means that the only way you can be right with God, is to perfectly obey the law of God all the time. But we're not in that relationship to the law anymore. That's not the way that we become right with God. We become right with God when we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what does that mean? It means that what is true of Christ is true of us. And what is true of Christ? Christ perfectly obeyed the law of God. Christ lived perfectly sinless life. He fulfilled the law in his earthly life in every detail. He lived up to that standard of absolute perfection. 
and then he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will so that the Father could take the sins of all of humanity and place them upon his Son and have his Son become the sin offering to pay the penalty for all sins so that if we would just put our faith in what Christ has done and who Christ is, that what happens is we're united with Christ. We're actually put into him, hidden in him, so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees the law perfectly fulfilled so that now, from that moment forward, the law has no condemning role over us anymore and forever. Do you see how that locks up the security of the believer and guarantees that the believer cannot and never can come into condemnation having been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are eternally secure and their salvation is perfectly guaranteed to come to its full and complete conclusion throughout all of eternity. That's based upon the very work of God in our justification and based upon the very fact that in our being united with Christ, we've died to sin and based upon the fact that in our being united with Christ, we have ended the relationship to the law that it demands we must obey it because in Christ, we did perfectly. Therefore, there is now no condemnation and never can be ever again any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Free! I can't enter into that law of sin and death anymore because I am eternally, completely secure now and forever in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so are you if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation over you. Oh, what a great liberating propositional statement that he makes to open up this great chapter. And what he's going to do for the next 38 verses is he's going to prove it. He's going to prove it. Over and over and over again. He's going to prove it. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. No dominion. Why? Because you're not in that realm anymore where it reigns. You're out of it forever. And the realm that you're now in is not the realm of the law. You're in the realm of grace if you're a true believer. You're in the realm of grace that defeats condemnation every time. So, believer, 
Do not see yourself as stepping out of condemnation and then sinning and into condemnation and then back and forth wondering if you're really going to make it. That's a Christian life that's all about your power and your Christian life is not about your power. It's about the power of the Almighty God. The undefeatable power of the Almighty God. And if he started it, he's carrying it on. And if he started it and is carrying it on, he is going to bring it to completion. Now, though we have dealt with this all through Romans chapter 6, in fact, it is the purpose of the detour there. It bears mentioning right here again because this truth is so shocking. It's so beyond what we would come up with. It causes us in our humanity to say, wait a minute, Pastor Brad, wait a minute. If you say that, you're going to encourage people to sin because there's no chance they can be condemned. So they're going to run out and sow their wild oats if you preach that. couple things to say to that. That's exactly what they were saying when Paul preached it. That's exactly what they were saying. That's why he stopped to write Romans chapter 6. So that I would present this to you. If the true gospel is being unadulterated and preached clearly and completely, it is always in every generation, in every location, going to cause some to rise up and say, wait a minute, if you preach that shocking truth, you are going to encourage people to sin. That's what it did in the first century with the greatest preacher. And it's going to happen all the way down through every century when it is accurately preached in all of its shocking truth. It just needs to be clarified, but not backed off on. Because there is therefore now no condemnation and never will be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Their security is forevermore. I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones deals with this seeming risk factor in preaching this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of its shocking reality. He says it's something like this. The difference between an unbeliever sinning and a believer sinning can be described like this. It is like the difference between a man sinning against the state or the government under which he lives and a man 
doing something that he shouldn't do to hurt and offend his wife. That's like the same difference. You see, in Adam, under the law, there is the breaking of the law and our activity, our sin, becomes a legal matter. God, holy, righteous, just, must punish sin. You break the law. If he's going to be true to his character and his nature, that sin has to be punished. And what is the punishment? It is eternal wrath and separation from him and his presence for eternity in hell. That's a legal dealing with sin. But that's an unbeliever's sin. A believer's sin is not a legal matter. It's a matter of love, not a matter of law. It's a relational issue related to love. Not a legal issue related to law. Now, Carry that out in its application and motivation on your heart as a believer on what will help you to, in the words of John Owen, mortify sin in the flesh, put sin to death in your flesh. What's going to motivate you more? Not to sin against the state in a legal matter or not to offend the love of God and sin against His grace and mercy, an unbelievable act of grace that sent His own Son, perfect and holy, to die in your stead. What are you going to be more motivated to do? Line up to the law in a legal sense or make sure that you don't offend the perfect, holy love of God? I say to you that the second is the far greater motivation. And in fact, that is what happens that when a believer sins, it's not a legal issue at all because they are done with the law as relates to their justification and therefore whether they're condemned or not. That's ended. Now it's a matter of love. It's The believer offending the very love of God. So that when you sin as a believer and the enemy of your soul or your own spirit rises up to say to you, you are condemned. You are condemned. You just take your spirit or you take the devil to Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and you say, there is therefore now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus and there I stay forever, never changing. My security is locked up by the divine work of omnipotence. And I have ended my relationship with sin and law. And no, God has ended my relationship with sin and the law so that it doesn't have a rule over me anymore and the law cannot condemn me anymore because God sees me in his perfect son as if I am perfect. No condemnation.
no condemnation. Now, what then do you do? You put the enemy in his place, but then you humble yourself before the Father who loves you realizing that he hasn't condemned you in your sin, but no longer does he want you to stay in your sin, that your sin is an offense to his love, and you know right where to go. You run back into his arms of love in repentance, and you pour out your contrite plea to him apologizing for offending such a perfect love and asking for the power of His Spirit to help you to say no next time to what would offend and yes to what would please. Oh, there is so many application points to this. They could just touch all of life. Husband and wife. Is your marriage failing? Do you have a spouse that is offending? Are you ready to say, that's it, I'm done? Think about the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Think about the fact that you have drawn deep from the unfathomable wells of God's grace and mercy for your own life. And can you not, in that well, find the grace and mercy and the strength to extend that to your spouse? And in that grace, which is what it does, it conquers sin. In that grace, watch God turn your marriage around. Can't you as a parent to a son or a daughter who was offending find the grace of non-condemnation to extend as one who has received so much more lavish non-condemnation from the holy God yourself? No one who has drunk from the wells of no condemnation should ever be a condemner. That is the job of God and God alone. So I say to you in closing, if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, The truth of Scripture is that because of your union with Christ, 
and the work of God in putting you there. There is therefore now and never will be forevermore any condemnation for you. So don't ever think of yourself in that way again. Because that is a defeating posture. When you sin, see yourself sinning against the love of God. So that it constrains you to not do so again and to run to his arms of grace and mercy. And if you do that, he will in no wise cast you out. No wise. Please stand. We're going to End this with communion this morning as we sing a couple songs. Great way to capitalize the truth of what we've been talking about. In communion, it's an ordinance that the Lord Jesus Christ told us to participate in that helps us to remember his death. So that the elements of communion are bread that has been broken and juice representing the broken body of the Lord through his flogging and beating and crucifixion and the spilled blood of the Lord in his death on the cross. And it is his blood that saves so that we remember when we take of the bread and the juice, we remember that Jesus Christ is the author, perfecter, finisher of our salvation. So communion is for those who are in Christ. It is an action that is a visible manifestation of your solidarity to Christ. That you're not in Adam anymore. You're in Christ. Maybe you've never taken communion and this morning. You're saying, I want to be in Christ. I'm putting my faith in Christ this morning. I've heard what you've said. God has opened up my mind to believe and heart to receive Christ. And I want to put my faith in Christ this morning for salvation. Then you take communion as well for your first time. And welcome to the family. Ushers, you come. Bring the elements. Let me just say a prayer here. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. This perfect, all sufficient, atoning sacrifice of propitiation. Thank you. In his name I pray, amen. You receive the elements if you'd like to take them as they're passed. Remember the body and blood of the Lord.